If you brought your Bibles tonight, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Acts, to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. Now, we're going to be two places this evening. I want to start in Acts 16, but I'm going to flip back to Proverbs chapter 29 here in a minute. So, so those are the two places, Lord willing, uh, that I'll be tonight. Acts chapter 16, and, and then we'll flip back to, um, uh, to Proverbs chapter 29 here in a minute. Acts chapter 16, I want to begin at the 6th verse, and we'll read uh, verses 6 through 10. We'll read those five verses, and then we'll go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 6. Now you're going to have to excuse me. There's some names of some places I've never been to before, and so I don't know that I'll get the pronunciation right on all of them. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 6 says, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia in the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into uh, Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came uh, down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia, and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Let us go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you tonight. God, we thank you for the good day and for the many blessings. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather here tonight, to worship together, to lift our voices together to you in praise and give you the praise and the worship and the glory that you alone are due. We thank you, Lord, for each one that you've sent our way tonight. We thank you so much for our church family. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the roof you put over our head for the nation that we live in. What a blessing all of those things are. You blessed us so much and blessed us beyond measure. But even greater than any of those things, God, that you loved us so much that you sent and gave your only begotten Son. Lord, what a blessing, what a gift, what a wonderful thing that is. God, that you give Jesus for us and he died for us. And Lord, we're not worthy. We never could be worthy. Lord, we can't do enough to repay you. We can't even, not in a million years, could we even thank you enough. But Lord, let us always be a people with praise and glory on our lips for you, because you alone are worthy of it. And Lord, I just pray as we go forward in this service here tonight, Lord, we've already felt your presence here tonight, but Lord, we continue to invite your presence. Lord, your spirit is welcome here. God, we, as a matter of fact, we ask that you would move by your sweet Holy Spirit in our midst here tonight. Go, Lord, have your way and your will here. Lord, you know every, each one that's here. Nobody's a mystery to you. Nobody is a surprise. And so, Lord, my prayer is, is that you would just meet every need that's here tonight. God, that you'd lift us up and encourage us. God, that you'd draw us near to you. Lord, if there's some among us that stand in need of a healing touch, God, we know you're the great physician. We know all true healing comes from you. So, Lord, that's what we're asking you for tonight. 
Lord, for those who are maybe just downtrodden, maybe who are just, you know, down, heavy-hearted, God, I pray, Lord, that you'd pick them up and that you'd encourage them. And Lord, if there's any among us here tonight that has lost, undone, don't know you, any that are maybe just backslidden or grown cold, God, let tonight be the night, Lord, uh, that you'd pour out that old-time Holy Ghost conviction upon them. And God, they wouldn't get any peace till they'd repent and get things right with you before it's everlasting too late. So, Lord, I'm praying and I'm asking here tonight, have your way and your will in our midst. Do what only you can do here tonight, and we'll give you the glory for it, every bit of it. And Lord, help me to be the preacher you've called me to be. Lord, use me one more time here tonight. Preach me one more time. Lord, anoint me from on high. Lord, clear my mind of everything but your message, your thoughts, your words, and place on my tongue the very things you'd have me to say. And we'll give you the glory. We'll leave, we'll leave here rejoicing, saying it's been good to be in the house of God. We love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. At this point in Acts chapter 16, this is what is um, referred to as the second... Let's see, how do they say that? This is Paul's second mission trip, his second journey. I think some Bible studies call it a journey. This is his, this is his second, I'm just going to call it a mission trip, where he goes out and he starts churches, okay, uh, and evangelizes. The first one is when him and Barnabas went out, if you'll remember. And they went out and they had a successful mission trip, got several churches started and going. And they come back and they reported back to the church in Antioch who, was, who commissioned them and sent them out. But they also went to Jerusalem and reported there to the apostles and to the, to the church there in Jerusalem. They had of a mind that God would call them to go again. And to go encourage the churches they helped start, check on them, and start some more churches. And of course evangelize everywhere God would open the door for them along the way. If you'll remember, there was a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over Barnabas' nephew, Mark. Right? We're pretty sure that that's the same Mark, John Mark, right? Who uh, God used to author the gospel according to Mark. Uh, which that is, uh, Mark was essentially Peter's scribe. That's Peter's account that Mark is pinned down uh, for him. Of course, that's uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. But anyways, if you'll remember, um, they were going to start out with Mark with them, and, and there, was, uh, there had been an incident uh, uh, on the previous mission trip, and uh, Mark had decided he needed to go back home, and, and for whatever reason, we really don't know the details there. But anyways, when it comes to this second go-around, Barnabas wanted to take him, and Paul wouldn't have none, none of it. And there was quite a disagreement between them. And so anyways, through that, uh, Barnabas took Mark, and he went one way and on, the mission, on a mission trip, and Paul took Silas, and he went another way. And so Paul and Silas has gone on this second mission trip, this second journey. And they've gone along to check on churches and encourage them and to evangelize everywhere that they can, speak every chance that God give them the opportunity to share the gospel. But they were looking to go to some new areas and to see about starting some churches there. And it just seemed like the Holy Spirit of God, uh, as Scripture refers to here, says the Holy Ghost had kind of held them back from going to some places, right? There were some certain places that they uh, wanted to go to, 
and, uh, but it wasn't God's will. And so the Holy Ghost had been kind of holding them back. And then we get to this point here where they're in Troas. Now there's a couple things that's interesting here that take place at Troas. First of all, the narrative changes. What I mean by that is up through this point, up through verse 10, right? So I'm talking from the beginning of Acts all the way to verse 10 in Acts chapter 16. You hear it talked about whoever the person is it's talking about. For instance, Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas or earlier whenever it's Stephen or whoever it's talking about, right? It talks about, it names them and it talks about them and they. And then all of a sudden when we get to verse 10, it's talking about Paul, Silas, Timothy, but it no longer says they and them. It says we. We. All of a sudden at this point, instead of saying they went and done this, starts saying we went and did this. This is what happened. What changed? What happened? Well, we know from Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 that Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Here at Troas is where they picked up Luke. This is where Luke, I don't know if Luke just got saved, if he'd been previously saved, but, Luke, but here is where they picked up Luke because Luke's been writing and he's writing about what they did, what they did, and then all of a sudden Luke joins the, the they and all of a sudden now it's what we did. Right? What the Spirit of God guided us and how we done this and we done that. So that's interesting. That's not really the point of my message, but I just wanted to point that out. So in any ways, they're here and they, and they have met this resistance, right? God had uh, forbid them, right? They were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. That's what it started out telling us in verse 6, right? And so anyways, um, uh, then, God, er, then Paul has this vision. In the middle of the night, right? That's what it tells us. It says Paul has a vision in the middle of the night of a Macedonian man saying, come on over here. Come here. So the significance of this vision, which is usually referred to as the Macedonian call, is that it's the starting point of the gospel message going to Europe. What's interesting about that is right here is the launching place. This is where the, when they cross the Aegean Sea and go over to what's modern day Greece and begin, the gospel for the first time is preached in what we know today as Europe. That is the beginning of the spread of the gospel all the way down to you and me here tonight. tonight right? This is the beginning of the mission trip that reached us. Here, tonight, that reached us, right? This is the beginning of the gospel going forward to the Western world. Now, here's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Here's what the Lord would have me to preach. It's about this vision that Paul had, right? It says here, verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And then that vision was of this Macedonian man, right? There stood a, he, he explains to us what's in it. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. Verse 10 says, and after 
he had seen the vision. So after Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, there's your first we I was just talking about, right? So we got, we got Paul, we've got uh, Silas, we've got Timothy, and now we have Luke. Immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia. We recognized immediately that's what God wanted us to do. Was That's what Luke is saying here. To go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto us. In other words, he's saying there's no doubt. That's what God was asking us to do. That's why we had been hindered to, uh, of going to all these other places. That's why uh, we had met the resistance of the Holy Spirit when we began to talk about and think about and inquire about going to these other places, right? There was a pushback. God was pushing back because that wasn't what he's planned. That wasn't what he wanted. So when I think about this vision, right, this is a vision from God. I immediately think about it, and I know you know this verse, or probably have heard it before, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now that's probably what you're familiar with. That's probably the part you could tell me that you've got memorized, you could right off top, right from your heart. That's only half the verse. The other half says, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. I'm going to hopefully tie all this together. I'm going to point out tonight that the first half of that proverb is probably one of the most misused verses in the Bible. There's a few verses that get thrown around there a lot that absolutely, you know, we say it and maybe even what we're saying is right. But we're totally using the wrong verse. We're totally taking a verse completely out of context and completely misusing it. So you probably have heard this verse quoted before. You probably have heard it to used to encourage people to get on board with whatever plans or ideas that the pastor and the church leadership might have in mind. You probably even heard that if the leadership doesn't have what it's calling a vision, and what they mean by a vision here is big dreams, right? It, 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 you probably have heard it before, talked about, maybe even preached that if a leadership does not have some sort of big dreams, if they don't have a vision, that the church won't do well, and that the people will will they'll perish, right? They'll, what, and what they mean by that is usually they mean they'll slowly quit, right? They'll quit coming, right? They'll slowly disappear. The problem with all that is that's not at all what the Bible is saying here. I know, I know. Now don't throw stones at me yet. Maybe, maybe your favorite preacher or Christian leader, right, someone that you admired a lot, maybe they used this verse in that sense. And that's okay. That really is. All that means is that they were wrong. That's not as big a deal or the end of the world as you might be thinking right now. That doesn't make them less of a Christian or less admirable. It just means that they weren't perfect. I'm sure, I'm sure every single one of us, all of us, at some time or another, was wrong, right? I am quite sure, as a matter of fact, we've, 
I won't get into all of it, but it was kind of come out in a Bible study one time what a certain verse meant. And I was kind of ta- I was a little bit taken back by it. And that's not what I had thought that it meant. And I even come across some old sermon notes of mine where I had totally misused it. That kind of thing, I mean, it happens. Vision, let's get back here though. Vision in this verse does not refer to one's ability to formulate future goals and plans. God is the one that forms the goals and the plans. Think about Paul. Paul and Silas and them, they had all kinds of plans. They had good plans, right? They were wanting to go to these different towns. They were wanting to evangelize. They were wanting to start churches and stuff. They had a, they had, you might even say they had a vision for some of these places like my, uh, Myja and Bithynia, however you say them places. Problem is, is it wasn't God's plan for them. It wasn't God's vision. God is the one who forms the goals and the plans. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. A pastor should have some vision and some drive in the sense that we normally use that term, right? He should have a vision for for the church to get out and to evangelize the community. He should have a vision for growth of all kinds, right? He should have a vision uh, and a drive to see the, the congregation that God has put into his care, right? To see them grow in love and to see them grow in spirit, grow as a Christian, grow in unity and grow in numbers as well. I mean, in other words, he should have a, a, a vision, a desire, a drive for real kingdom growth. Pastor, matter of fact, I'd say the pastor must have this drive. He must have a vision. And the congregation must have that same drive, and they must have that same vision. But let me tell you something. That vision has got to be the same one that Paul finally got a hold of right here. It must be the same one that Jesus has. The vision is for a lost and dying world. Right, that's why it says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, for the Son of Man is, is come to seek and to save that which was lost. But that right there does not, and it's what I'm trying to get at, that doesn't exactly cover all of what's being said here in Proverbs 29, 18. When we look, and, and, and if you've already marked it or not, flip over there. When you look at Proverbs 29, 18, and you look at those scriptures that are around him. You'll see here, and I'm just going to go ahead and, and give you the answer. Vision here means divine revelation. You look it up, you chase it down, uh, you, you look however you want, right? Whatever resources, however you want to go about it. And that's even the definition that if you look at the whole context of the scripture that you pull from this is divine revelation. So let's start thinking about what is the divine revelation. Well, the first thing I would say is it is the word of God, which is the vision of God, right? Think about it this way for just a minute, right? It says, uh, it says here in 29.18, uh, where there is no vision, the people perish, right? Uh, so anyways, where God is not real to the people, 
because they have no vision or no picture of the reality of God, the people will perish due to a lack of faith. Just think about it here for a minute with me. A vision from God is a divine revelation. In the Bible, the Word of God, that is a divine revelation of God Himself to us. Now, stay with me. For any interpretation of Scripture to be correct, for it to be true, the right interpretation, it must fit the context. The context that the verse or verses are found in. And it must agree with the rest of the Scripture. That first test... You know, we like to call it a, a sniff test, smell test. The first smell test is, does it fit, does your interpretation fit with the verses that are around it? So, in Revelation twenty nine eighteen, where there is no vision, the people perish. How that is so used, or I'll say it this way, it's how I've heard it used almost every time I've ever heard it used is what they're saying is, is where the pastor and the leaders in the church do not have big dreams, big plans, the people will go away. Or they'll wither up and die spiritually. Let me ask you something. Does that fit with even the second half of the verse? But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. If the preacher don't have big plans, the people are going to perish, the people are going to go away. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Does that even make sense? If we look at Proverbs chapter 29 as a whole, we see a theme of the need for constraint and correction. All the way through the whole chapter. I'm not going to go through every verse in the chapter, right? But, but just listen to the verses immediately around this. Listen to verses 15 through 19 for just a minute. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. What I say we're looking for is a running theme through here, constraint and correction. Do you hear it in that verse? Verse 16, when the wicked are multiplied, transgression increased, increaseth, but the righteous shall see their fall. Constraint and correction. Verse 17, Correct thy son, and he, him, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Do you hear the correction and the constraint there? Verse 18, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Probably what you think about that might be a little muddled right now. Listen to the second half of that verse. But he that keepeth the law... Happy is he. Can you begin to see the constraint and the correction there in that verse? Verse 19. A servant will not be corrected by words, for though he understandeth, he will not answer. Do you see that? Do you hear that all the way through there? Does anybody remember what the Bible says that the word of God is used for? Let me remind you. 2 Timothy 3.16, in case you ever question or wonder about this, that's where you'll find the answer to that question. It tells us that all scripture, all, excuse me, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
right? It tells us the source of Scripture. All of it is given by inspiration of God, right? It is. It does not come by the will of man, right? It is not because man, you know, wanted that or that's what he desired. No, Scripture comes by inspiration of God. That means it was literally breathed out by God. And it's profitable for doctrine, right? Doctrine means what we teach, right? What we believe and what we teach, right? That's our doctrine, right? So he says it's profitable for doctrine. And then he goes through a whole list here. For reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness. Do you see a connection here? Constraint and correction? That's what we're talking about in Proverbs 29. That's what it's talking about there in verse uh, in the second half of verse 18, it says, But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. What's it talking about when it says keepeth the law? It's talking about the word of God, right? That's what they had at that point, right? So he that keeps the word of God, he that keeps God's word, God's rules, God's command, what God has instructed them to do, happy is he. So put that together with the first half, right? That first half is not going to mean something completely different, completely out of context, right? So anyway, so when we look at the first half, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish, right? What is a vision? It's a divine revelation. Where there is no divine revelation, the people will perish, right? Where there is no vision of God, where there is no word of God, the people will perish perish the vision is the true word of God and without it people are perishing where the word of God is silenced can we think of some places in the world today where the word of God is being silenced where the word of God is silenced what about where the word of God is absent? Can we think of some places, right? Not only where it's been silenced, but can we think of some places that maybe have never even received the word of God yet? Where the word of God is silenced, where the word of God is absent. What will happen? The people will cast off all restraint. And they will do what is right in their own eyes. Where the word of God is silenced, where it is absent where it has been removed from, where it is no longer prominent, where it is no longer going forth, where it is no longer being preached and taught, the people will cast off all constraint. That's what Proverbs chapter 29 is talking about, right? Those that, that where there is no word of God, where there is no divine revelation, where it's silent, where it's absent, where it's removed, where it's muffled, those people in those places will perish. Because they will cast off all constraint and they will do whatever is right in their own eyes. Do we not see that very thing at the end of the book of Judges? Where every man done what was right in his own eyes. There's no divine revelation. No vision from God. Samuel even says that in there. The prophet Amos says in Amos chapter 8 verse 11. He said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. But then he goes on and he talks about what kind of famine it is, right? Because as soon as they said there's going to be a famine in the land, they're thinking, oh no, drought's coming. Oh no, something's going to eat up our crops. Oh no, our bellies are going to be empty. He goes, no, 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 no. That's not the kind of famine I'm talking about. It's a prophecy of the Lord. 
Right? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. But it's not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Don't you think that we live in this today? I know that there's direct application in Amos' time. I, I get that. But I think the prophecy is for more than just in Amos' time. Do you not look out across our land? And do you not see a time where the word of God... Just, let's just think about our own nation for just a minute. Just think about the United States. This would apply for probably the whole Western world, but just think about the United States for just a minute. Has any of you ever known a time in your life where the Word of God has less prominence and less respect than it does right now? Has there ever been a time in your lifetime where there was as many or more people who claimed to preach the Word of God but did not? What's happening? What's happening? Would it be fair to say that our society and the people in our land are casting off all restraint? Would it be fair to say that we live in a time where men are doing what is right in their own sight? Could we not look? Could we not look back just a few years? And the thing, one of the things that really opened my eyes, and you just forgive me uh, as being young and ignorant at the time, but one of the things that really uh, opened my eyes is when the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was okay, that that was marriage. Can you, can, could you think of a better? Could you think of a better example of all restraint being cast off? Men lusting for men. Women lusting for men. And as a society, we do what is right in our own eyes. And we say, you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. You know what? That's fine. And if you're not okay with it, then there's something wrong with you. You're some sort of phobe, right? Homophobe or thisophobe or thatophobe. Well, I guess if you're going to say that, then call me a Godphobe because that's who I fear. Hallelujah. Right? You understand that, right? Phobe means a, a fear of something, right? I ain't, fear, I ain't afraid of no gay people, but I am afraid of what God would do. I am afraid of the wrath of God. I am afraid of upsetting my heavenly Father. Hallelujah. Glory to God. They can cast off all restraint and they can do whatever is right in their own eyes. But I'm going to tell you right now, we've got to stand for the word of God. We've got to preach the truth. There may be a famine in the land for the word of God, but glory to God, we still need to be a beacon of light here. We still need to preach the gospel. Oh, church, it sickens me so much. You turn on the TV and what do you see? Is there any programs on regular TV 
that doesn't have at least one main character who's gay. I'm talking on Channel 3, Channel 10, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox. If you can fake a one, you tell me afterwards, right? That's currently being made. I'm not talking about the Little House on the Prairie reruns or the Andy Griffith reruns. I like those a lot. But I'm talking, is there anything that's coming out of Hollywood right now that don't have a, a main character who is gay? What do you think? What do you think's going on there? What do you think's happening? What agenda do you think they're trying to shove down our throat? What do you think they're trying to they're trying to indoctrinate our children with? Unless you've got little kids or grandkids or something, you probably never heard of this. But there's a cartoon, Channel 21, called Peppa Pig. It's just a little cartoon and the characters are all pigs. They're pigs who live like people and talk like people. And so you understand how that works, right? Jennifer, some of the kids that she babysits, I mean, they're, you know, she's got them all the way from, she's got a newborn baby all the way up to in preschool, you know. She's got a couple of them that's around three years old right now. One little boy, is he three yet? He, he's two, he'll be three. He don't say a whole lot of words plain, but he says Peppa Pig. He likes to watch Peppa Pig. That's a treat. He likes Peppa Pig. The others like it too. Here's the reason I'm telling you about Peppa Pig. Now, not that I've sat and watched a ton of Peppa Pig, but I've seen a little bit of it. I never really saw nothing wrong with it. I mean, there's some things I wish they did different. And then all of a sudden, what, within the last month, three weeks ago, they introduced a new family into Peppa Pig that's one of the friends or the neighbors or whatever who is their first same-sex couple. This cartoon is targeted right at two, three, four-year-olds. By the time they get five or six, they're not even interested in that kind of cartoon anymore. What do you think's happening there? What do you think they're doing? There's a famine in the land for the word of God, Scott. And they've cast off all restraint. And they're doing what is right in their own eyes. That's why the Bible tells us that where there is no vision, people perish. Look, as much as your preacher and your pastor and your leaders need to have formulated some plans and have a vision for reaching the people in your community and so on and so forth, that's not what that verse is talking about. That is talking about where there is a, where that word of God, where it is absent, where it is not going forward, Right? We live in a day and a time where the Word of God is ridiculed. I don't know if you realize that or not, but there's people that make fun of us because we believe the Word of God, right? They call it fairy tales and myths and things like that all the time, right? They openly mock us, right, and, and say that we're, you know, Neanderthals and say that we're just dumb hicks and things like that because we literally believe the Word of God. What are they doing? They're casting off all restraint and doing what is right in their own sight because we live in a time and a day in a society where there is no vision. Divine revelation. How can, you, how can you mock the word of God? How can you say things like that? You can only say things like that because you don't believe in the reality of God. You don't believe that he's real. You don't believe 
that he really exists. You don't believe that he will do what he said in his word that he will do. So church, what is our job? What do we need to be doing? I've been saying it for a long time. I need to actually do it. Or if somebody, if one of you feel like, you know what? I'm tired of hearing the preacher talking about it. I'm just going to do it. You go ahead and do it. I've been saying on the back of that sign for almost 10 years now. The church sign. You know, the back of it. When you go out, there ain't nothing on the back of it. It ain't doing no good. What it needs to say is tell somebody about Jesus. Right? That's what we need to leave here is with a mind to share the word of God, with a mind to spread the gospel, with a mind to share the vision of God with a lost and dying world. We need to get a vision to take them the vision, the divine revelation. The community right here around us do you not see that here in, in Mountain Grove and Norwood and Kabul, the community right here around us? They're the same as the Macedonians uh, uh, in Paul's day, right? Uh, just as they were calling for Paul to bring them the word of God, they are calling for us today to bring them the word of God. Do you hear me, church, tonight? Our friends, our neighbors, our kids, and our grandkids, they are saying, come on over and help us because they are perishing. And we have the only thing that will save them. The only thing that can truly help them. And that is Jesus. So let me give you just a little bit of practical advice here before we have an altar call. First thing is, the church house is a great, fantastic place to bring lost people if you can get them to come. Anybody that's ever invited somebody lost, you understand what I'm saying, if you can get them to come. I can't think of a better place. I'd rather see you bring them to the house of God than to see you take them to a restaurant, to the grocery store, to wherever. I'd rather see you bring them to the house of God. That is an absolute fantastic place to bring lost people if you can get them to come. But listen to me. If your only plan to get the gospel to them Right to get the word of God to them, to lost people, so that they won't perish. If your only plan is inviting them to church, then you are missing a huge opportunity to spread the gospel, and you are falling far short of what God expects of you. Invite them. Please invite them. But please that is not the end of your, uh, of your job, of your duty, of your obligation, of what God expects of you. That is not, that cannot be your only plan. God expects far more of you than that. So yes, invite them to church, of course. Like I said, that's obvious. That's wonderful. That's bare minimum. But don't just invite them to church. 
there's a good chance, honestly, and I don't mean to discourage you from inviting them, but how many people come that you invite? One out of ten? That's a pretty average statistic. You might get a little better. If you're really good at it, you might get a little better response than that. But don't just invite them to church. Because there's a good chance they're not even going to come. You have their ear and you have the opportunity. Invite them to Jesus. You want to guarantee that they'll come to church? Get them hooked up with Jesus. That's the, that's, you want to change that 10% to 100%? Invite them to Jesus. Don't worry about what you're going to say to them, right? That is probably one of the top tactics the devil uses to discourage us and to keep us from witnessing and sharing the gospel and sharing the word of God with lost people. It's worrying about what we're going to say to them. Stop it. Don't do it. Stop worrying. Right next time you start to worry, remember what I'm saying to you right now. Stop worrying about exactly, word for word, what you're going to say to them. Instead, do this. Make sure that you spend time every day in God's word, with God, and in prayer. That's, what, that's it. Make sure that you spend time every day with God, in his word, and in prayer. Then, when the time comes, when God opens the door, and you have the opportunity to talk to somebody, just have the courage and the faith to open your mouth and speak the words that God gives you. That's it. I know when I'm telling you it sounds easier than what it is. I get it. I understand. I live it every day too. But I promise you, if you will have that relationship with God and then have that kind of obedience where you step out in faith, God won't leave you hanging. He will not leave you hanging. Now, now listen, you know what the enemy's job is to do, right? Come along and discourage you. So when you do this, <coughs> the enemy's going to come along and he's going to tell you what a fool you are, how dumb you are, and how dumb you sounded. He's a liar. Don't listen to him. Tell him to get lost. Did you realize you can do that? Yeah, rebuke him in the name of Jesus. You know what he's got to do? Flee, leave, tell him to get out of here. Tell him he's a liar. Tell him to get lost. He won't like that, but that's what he'll do. Have faith that you have spoke the word of God because it is so much in you and a part of you. And you've done everything you can to be led of the spirit of God. That God's words is what will come out of you. And know and have faith that God's word will accomplish his intended purposes. Might not accomplish yours, but it will accomplish God's. Just remember this. When left to do what God, I heard this analogy a long time ago and it's so true. When left to do what God intended for it to do, a tree will produce a forest. Do you realize that? A tree left out there to do what God has intended for it to do, it will produce a forest. Not an extraordinary tree, 
Not some super duper duper special tree. Just a regular old ordinary tree. Just a regular old run-of-the-mill ordinary tree. Do you see where I'm going? You know, we feel like we've got to be some sort of super spiritual, super duper duper Christian in order to win people to Jesus. In order to make a change. In order to, 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 for God to use us to spark a revival in somebody's life, in somebody's family, in a city, in a nation. No, it's just ordinary. Ordinary folks. The command to us from the beginning is to be fruitful and multiply. He's talking to Adam and Eve. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply. He does it again to Noah. Right? He's talking to them to be fruitful and to multiply. Do you realize that command is still for us today? Be fruitful and multiply. But I think for us, he's talking in a spiritual sense. We're to go out. I know Jesus has said it in different ways over and over. Right? We're to go out and we're to be a witness. We're to win the lost to, uh, to the kingdom of God. Right? We're to teach them everything uh, that he taught us. We're to baptize them just like we did this morning. We're to be fruitful and to multiply, adding souls to the kingdom of God. The commission is to go out and to make disciples. Jesus' teaching was to go out and to compel them to come into his kingdom, to his father's house, may be filled. Sharing the word is the way that we do that. And he promises that his word will not return void. It will do just exactly what God intended for it to do. You just have to do what God intended for you to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? God's word will do exactly what he intended for it to do. It will not return void. It will accomplish his purposes. All we've got to do is go out and do what God intended for us to do. Jennifer, will you come for a song of invitation? I don't know what your heart is tonight. I don't know where you stand tonight. Maybe, maybe you're lost tonight and you know that you're lost. Well, I'm begging you, if God has opened your eyes and revealed that to you, if your heart's been pricked here tonight by, the, by his word, please, please don't pass on this opportunity. But then maybe again, God's been dealing with your heart. Maybe there's some things in your life that shouldn't be there. Now's the time to come and deal with those. Would you stand to your feet? Maybe God's burdened your heart with somebody. Somebody who's lost. Somebody who's out in the world. Somebody who's going to perish. Unless they get a vision of God. Unless they get a hold of the reality of the divine revelation of God. Maybe God's been speaking to you. Maybe he's calling you. Maybe they are your Macedonian man who's calling you. Come over here and help.
God's dealing with your heart, would you come tonight? If you've got a burden, whatever it is, would you come tonight? Just be obedient to the Spirit of God. Don't wait any longer. Don't hold back. You just step out and come on. Whatever it is, would you come? Would you come?